keep losing the two PhDs, you open up the horizon to something like 671 people in the next month. Two PhDs just to talk. And then you're creative in the days of the year. Before the days of trouble come and the years of hope, you remember to say, I find my pleasure in life. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the blinders cease because they are clear, and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding plates, when people ride by at the sound of birds and all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in this world, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire and longing are stopped. Then people go to their eternal home, and mourners go about the streets. Remember him who was simply called the devil, when the golden bowl was broken, before the pitcher was shattered at the spring, and the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground in painful, and the spirit returns to God in sorrow. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many problems. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like bones, their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails, given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study, there is the problem. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, and he will know every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And the second reading is from the New Testament, first Corinthians. Chapter 1, <coughs> 18 to 21. And you can find that on page 1142. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, Foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human wisdom. Thanks, Sue. I'm looking forward to today. I'm looking forward to wrapping up Ecclesiastes. It's been a really um, enjoyable series to 
uh, to do with you. And it's been great hearing um, how everyone's been engaging with Ecclesiastes and been um, wrestling with it and, uh, and just trying to figure out what it's all about and hearing stories of uh, people being challenged and, and enjoying the book. Uh, and I uh, trust that that's been what it has been for you. Um, I also encourage you not to let Ecclesiastes uh, move on from it. Uh, I think once you read Ecclesiastes, it kind of stays with you. And I encourage you uh, to keep on over the years going back to this great book because it has so much more to teach us than what we've just done in these hot weeks. And then I pray, and then we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you give us uh, meaning and purpose in life. Lord, we uh, consider that as we finish Ecclesiastes. We pray that we'll understand your word and your spirit will convict us to truly be wise and seek your name in your life. Amen. Now, as I said at the beginning, we've been searching for meaning in this series. We've been trying to figure it out. We've been looking at all array of different things that we've been trying to figure it out. And I don't know about you and what, what you think the meaning in life is, but we kind of saw that whatever you come up with, there are the three big things that take it down that we looked at over the last three weeks. Anyone want to yell out one of those three things? What were the three things that take down meaning? Time. Time passes on. Time marches on. It continues on. What else was there? The yes. big one last week that was pretty deep and heavy. Death. Death. Any search for meaning ends up with death. And that was a big barrier. And the last one was the randomness of life. The chance that happens that we see that Ecclesiastes brought up the idea that things happen to people and you don't know why it happens to them and not to someone else. Just like this morning as um, we're just having a quick look at the news and they're talking to farmers who the, flood, the floods were so bad in, I think it was out, way back out in New South Wales, um, that the floods were so bad, the crops, no harvesting, and even worse than that, the water stayed for so long, they couldn't do their summer planting. And then they talked to another farmer, same situation, and it was nowhere near as bad. Anyone who's done any farming knows uh, far more, have far more experience and wisdom than I do on that. The chance that it depends upon the weather and a whole array of different aspects. These barriers seem to take down our search for meaning. That's why we looked at it the last few weeks if you want to go back and uh, see how that plays out in Ecclesiastes um, with our talks. But the way we've done it is we've seen that Ecclesiastes as an author who introduces the book, and today we're going to see his conclusion, but he actually kind of paves the way for his critic, his kind of critic to come along and look at life and review it and to see what it's like. And he looks at life with the little phrase, life under the sun. The critic, throughout all Ecclesiastes, from uh, chapter 1 through to chapter 12, he's looking at life under the sun and he's trying to figure out what's going on. So what we're going to do today, we're going to try and figure out this meaning as the, the critic sets us up for the author's conclusion. And on the, up here, I've got the outline that I didn't, didn't um, have there for you, and that can, that can stay up there. 
as we as we start to point to their life under the sun. You see, the critic he went through and he had a look at everything there was. Because of those three big barriers, he had a look and he said that everything has lost its place. But one last time that we're going to bring it up. The very big thing of Ecclesiastes, that statement, what is it? It's up there, it is pebble. Now if you're here for the first time and you're thinking, why are they talking gibberish? Pebble is the word that in our Bibles has said, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, he says. In chapter 12, verse 8, the final thematic statement, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. And that Hebrew word hebel, we brought it back to there because what we've seen is it's not that it's meaningless, it's more that meaning's hard to find. It's hard to grab a hold of. That word hebel is kind of a vapour, a mist, and I keep bringing that up to remind you each week. And here, we're at the final layer of our hamburger in chapter 12, verse 8. The way uh, we've described the book and how it's structured, structured is a hamburger and chips. Ecclesiastes starts with meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless, and it ends with meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless, and in the middle is the meat, the explanation why, that juicy meat, which fills that out for you. With any good hamburger, and actually the other week while we were on holidays, I had a hamburger and there was no chips. I was filthy because I wanted my chips because I've been thinking about it every week, talking about it. But with any good hamburger, there is chips. And the chips, those tasty bits in the end, is how Ecclesiastes ends, with the conclusion. What is the conclusion to be had? How does the book end? Well, I want to get there, I want to pause, and I want to ask you to do something for a moment. Um, I want you to actually think, and come up with at least three, see if you can get to five in your head, write them down if you write stuff down. What, forgetting God, where really do I say that? Forgetting God, forgetting, put him in the picture, what things in your life would play the role of having purpose? And I want you to be specific. It's good for us to think about them and to own them, as this book has kept on doing it. Why don't we do it for ourselves? So for me, I would say, being able to get better and better at the sports I play. That's specific. But I actually really value doing it. I want you to come up with your own specific ones. I'm going to give you a minute just to reflect on that yourself, because it's a helpful thing to do before we get to the conclusion. See if you can come up with at least three. I come up with a possible 30 during the week, so I'm sure you can do it.
You got your three? Continue to think about that over, over the days. Hold that in your mind as we continue the, the um, reflections on the conclusions of Ecclesiastes. Hold that intention with the critics for you that it's all kind of devil. Doesn't really get you anywhere. How does this book end? Well, the critic actually wants to set us up. He wants to help us see how it ends. And we've already been there through the series, is that if you're going to find meaning in life, you need to remember God. We've talked about that in previous weeks. And in chapter 12, at the beginning, verse 1, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. You can't find meaning if you're not going to think about who God is and how He is and what He's done. You remember Him. But I think the really important point to notice, if you have um, chapter 12 open, it's framed, remember your Creator, before is the key word. The importance of before. In verse 1, before the days of trouble come. Verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark. And then everything from 2 all the way down uh, to verse 6 is before. So I'm framed by before. And then in verse 6, Remember him before the silver uh, cord is severed, or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring, before you're dead. You can't eat your hamburger and chips before it's cooked. You can't remember God and consider the meaning of life once you're dead. You need to prepare. You need to actually invest meaning in life. And that's where the critic's final words end before he sums it up with his famous statement. Meaningless. So where do we go? Let's get to the conclusion of the whole matter. See, what happens is, after verse 8, the critic steps out and the author of the book comes back in and makes some statements about the wisdom of, uh, of the teacher, the critic, and what he's done. And then we get to verse 13. And verse 13 says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The conclusion of the matter is fear God and keep his commandments. Fearing is the beginning of being wise. A whole book is built on that premise in the Bible. The book uh, before Ecclesiastes, part of these wisdom books Proverbs sets that idea up for us. Have a look at that Proverbs chapter on the screen there. It should come up. Chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord kicks off wisdom. It's the beginning of it. Because you have knowledge. It's the beginning of knowledge. 
You truly get it if you get that it's right to fear God. That's what you need to do. And so, while the critic has gone through and shown that Proverbs doesn't work as uh, uh, perfectly as um, as has been out, uh, outlined uh, in, in Ecclesiastes, that all those Proverbs don't always work out, the conclusion is still, it's good and right to fear the Lord and to follow His ways. It's this, you start with knowing God. And we need to understand, I reckon, I don't know, when I say fear, what do you think? I reckon across this room there'd be a whole array of emotions and thoughts on the word. We need to understand what we mean by fear. Because I think we can water it down. Often we can say the fear of the Lord, you could say, you could replace verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, the respect and reverence of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's often kind of what we do. We kind of say fearing God is kind of revering Him, being in awe of Him, and having honour towards Him. I think that's absolutely right. But I want to show you that that's only a component of it and we're watering it down to stay there. Respect and reverence is part but not the whole of true fear. Fear is fear. We need to understand what we mean by that. I respect many of you. But when I was uh, greeted by Colin at the door this morning, uh, my respect for him is as big as it's ever been, but I didn't fall over as if I was dead. Okay? That didn't happen. But John, who writes Revelation, which by the way, next week as we kick off our, our year um, and, we, and uh, as, as we get going, we're going to do Revelation chapter 1 to 5. We'll see next week, John, in his vision, who's he see? God, what happens? He falls over as if dead. That's not someone just respecting and having respect like I define. There is this genuine fear of the greatness and holiness and bigness of God. And that's something that happens throughout the Bible, all through the Old Testament. You look at Isaiah and, and what happens there, and, and you see um, even the burning bush and, and how, um, uh, what's his name? Moses. <laughs> Moses. He uh, can't, he's like, he can't, uh, approach the burning bush and, and everything that plays out there, the holiness of God. God's described as a consuming fire in Hebrews chapter 12. He is the all-powerful creator that sustains everything. I think, if we think about it this way, um, think about the sun. Well, the sun out there that's beating down today, right? The sun. Is it good? Yes or no? The sun is good. We need the sun. We talk about all the problems that we have with climate and everything, but we need the sun. The way the world works is if the sun's not there, big trouble. Now, if you fly towards the sun, does the sun get any more worse? Is it, is it evil? No. But you're not going to get anywhere near it. What's going to happen? You're going to disintegrate because of its brilliance. It's kind of a way of seeing the holiness and bigness of God, the power that he has 
is that he is someone of that magnitude. It's not that he's evil, it's not that he's um, wicked, but his goodness is so spectacular, we can't even get to his presence. And when we understand he has us in his hand, he sustains us with the moment we can disappear, fear needs to be seen in that. And it's more than the great and huge respect that I have for many of you. It's real fear. Why? Well, before we even get there, you notice in verse 12 uh, what it says uh, about uh, what, what, what you do. In, in verse, sorry, chapter 4, verse 13, this is the whole duty of men, or what all mankind need to do, what every single person, male and female, your whole purpose is this. Now, the word um, duty that is in some translations is kind of there to make sense of it, because what, what, what's being said is that for this is the whole of humanity. It doesn't kind of make sense, but the point is, fear God and keep his commandments, that's everything that you're about. Everything, every little bit of you, there's nothing else that doesn't belong inside that. It's the whole of humanity. When you think about yourself and who you are, you fear God and want to follow his ways. That's our purpose, that's our identity, because we've been made by him and for him. As Colossians says. You see, when we think like that, kind of reorient us to how we see life. Because this isn't just an option or a part of our life. It is saying it encapsulates your very being and essence of everything that you are. But why is, does it encapsulate everything that we are? And everything that we uh, do? Why? Well, as I said, it's not just this reverence. As much as that is. Verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. That's a pretty intense way to finish the book, isn't it, really? But it's really helpful. You see, these isn't harsh words that make God sound bad. These are good words because it's saying all of the injustice that the critic has brought up, all the things that aren't working out, the chance that seems to ruin everything, the those that are, are wicked, who are wealthy, and those that are upright aren't, God sees it all. And we not, not understand his judgment and how he judges in all ways, but he does it and does it right. So, if he has that power, if he's that magnificent, sustains and controls all things, and he judges how much? What is it again? It's everything. Not just the things that you know, all of the hidden things. Whether it's good or whether it's evil. This isn't um, just a kind of impersonal statement to help us on our way. This is personal. Just before in chapter 11, the critic made that point out to us. He said, uh, as he was talking uh, to, to the youth, as he often did, because he was wanting to prepare them, be happy, young man, while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth, in chapter 11, verse 9. 
Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that all these things God will bring you to judgment. Off you go. Follow your hearts and your ways. But if they're wicked, remember, God is the judge. Here is the picture of the enemy. Now, what you could do, uh, you could say, you know, this is this is the old way, this is the way the church used to speak in of old. This is actually the Old Testament's way of talking about fear. But Jesus comes and makes it all light and happiness and love. But let's consider Jesus. Let's consider how we see him in the New Testament. If there's ever a chapter, as you know, that um, we've spent so much time on and pretty much shaped our, our church on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a bit that we haven't really talked about all the times that we've gone to it is the idea of fear. But have a look at how um, we see it in chapter 5. Hopefully I'll put it up there correctly. Chapter 2, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, which is kind of a bit messed up, they're trying, when it talks about uh, fearing God and keeping his commandments, they're really wrestling with what it means to follow God. They've lived lives of debauchery and indulgence, and they're all messed up, and they're trying to figure all this out. And, and in, in this church, he's speaking to the Christians, and he says to them, we know, that it, we know what it is to fear the Lord. This is what Christians do. Fear the Lord. Since. Why? Since? Well, let's have a look at the verse before, in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This isn't out there. This is for we must all. This is Paul talking to Christians and letting them know judgment is real. What Ecclesiastes says that everything's done, good and bad, is real. And because you know that, you want others to see Jesus. That's what he goes on to say. That Christ's love compels you. So you fear God to keep his commands. Is that it? Is that what we do with this book and that's it? I want us to see that while Ecclesiastes has given us meaning and purpose, shown us the folly of all of those things, maybe those three things we've come up with, shown us all of those things that uh, uh, we try and find meaning that don't work out, while that's helpful, while fearing God and keeping his commandments is right, while that is what we need to do, it's not the full picture not the end of the story. It's the story, but it's not the end of it. The critic was only looking under the surface with what he could see and experience. But what if he was transported into the future? 
or 2,000 years uh, past from our time now. What would he see under the sun? He'd see a man born in very humble beginnings. He'd see the most spectacular, perfect life full of sacrifice and love and care and generosity and friendship. He's someone who was followed, who people wanted to uh, get to know. He'd see this person had nothing. Not even a place to lay their head. No wealth, no home. And then he'd see this most noble of persons facing the most barbaric death you could imagine. Back in those Roman times. Where the criminals go to be despised, to be the very epitome of being cursed. You would see this upright, impressive person. That's what he'd see. And under the sun, his life would seem incredible. Actually, more than that, it would actually seem meaningless. It would be foolishness to have life. And yet, that's what we would see. That's what we need to see, rather, is the meaning of life. It's where, paradoxically, our search for meaning ends. It's what our second reading today uh, points out to us. It's what we saw with the kids about Jesus giving us wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, up on the screen, Let me read it to you. Sorry about that. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You hear that again? For the power, for the message of the cross is foolishness. If you look at Jesus on the cross... It is not wisdom. It is not something to fear. It is something to despise. And that's what happened. We have archaeological evidence of uh, Romans and others mocking the Christians for following the dead guy on the cross. It's stupid. It's foolishness. Looking at it on the surface, as many people still do today, most people still do today, it's just foolishness. It is not wisdom. That is what it seems under the sun for those who are perishing. But Paul goes on to say to the Corinthians, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here, wisdom is found. You see, wisdom, as you saw with the kids, you need to have the knowledge and then you need to know how to apply it properly. That is what wisdom is. The beginning is knowledge, understanding the way things are, and then navigating life, living it out the right way. And the only way we can do that is with Jesus and understanding rightly what the cross means. See, 
goes on to say uh, in verse uh, uh, 24, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus is wisdom. What verse 30 says, his death is where life is found and meaning is found. Why is that where life is found and meaning is found? Because everything that Ecclesiastes brought up to us has been dealt with through Jesus' death and resurrection. Every problem that we have is dealt with by Jesus. The end of the matter is judgment and Jesus is on the cross. Why is he there? It just seems stupid. It seems foolishness. It seems like an unwise act. He's there because he is taking our judgment. Every one of your hidden acts that you know of wrong, every one of mine, are being weighed on Jesus. That is where meaning and purpose is to be found in the one who we can follow. You see, we fear him and we follow him. Jesus came and in chapter 10 he said, I have come they may have life and have it to the full. He has come to give us life of enjoyment forever where death can't take us down where the randomness of life can't take us down, where time can't, because we are going to live forever with him, with no pain, death or suffering. Here we find where meaning reaches its focal point. It's where Ecclesiastes takes us towards. Finding it in the wisdom of God in Jesus when it seems so ridiculous to the world and seems like folly, it is God's But don't think that it's all just now nice things. It's far deeper than that. This is God dealing with your sin, your judgment. And Jesus made it very clear that the fear in God in Ecclesiastes is how you need to see him. He says in chapter 12, verse 5, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you to fear him. Jesus doesn't mix his words. He is all grace and love. The thing that covers everything is his love for us that he freely gives us that we don't deserve. But in rejection of that, he doesn't mix his words. He is plain. So how do we finally wrap it all up together? I think we're going to just, oh no, we'll go there in just a moment because that final point is living in fear in the safety of the cross. That's what I want you to take home today. So we can wrestle with fear, but then what if I spiral into concern, oh no, I'm going to hell, whatever, or fear, oh no, I won't fear, I'll just think like a lot. We don't think like that. It's not 
an either-or situation. It's not you have fear or you have love. When the church tries to do that, it gets it wrong. We have fear in love, which triumphs over all. It's because of the gracious love of God. We have that full life, a secure life, a life that will not lose its purpose when confronted by the things that seek to take it down. We live in fear in a place of safety if you're a follower of Jesus. You're fearing the Lord. It's a little bit like, um, I wonder if this illustration will help. You can probably do it from an aeroplane or a car, but just say in a car. When you're driving a car, you're in a position of relatively safety. Disasters happen all the time. But when you're driving your car, you're not in there at every moment freaking out, I'm going to die right now. Relative safety. But there's a sense of trepidation and fear, but you're safe. You're driving down the highway, safe. Take the car away and stand in the middle of the highway. Your fear levels are going to ramp up a little bit, aren't they? You're going to be We are in a position of safety still with a quiet fear of the God who has created the world. It's far more secure than a car to the illustration falls down, right? Sometimes there are horrendous moments and accidents. All those things happen. This is a place of promised security because while a car can fail, the cross can't. And it's already happened. understand the character and the goodness of God, we understand fear is the beginning of knowledge and what he does wisdom, so we want to follow his ways. And I want to encourage you today not to let another day pass you by where you don't know whether you're in a safe space or whether you're in a secure space. Today is the day to see Jesus has died for me, I'm going to trust him. you to make that decision. I want to encourage you to make that decision knowing the certainty by finishing with uh, Romans 8 that I'll read out to you to finish off our series together. Brothers and sisters, you'll only ever find purpose and meaning if you understand your call to Jesus and what Jesus wants you to do. But if you're not called finish our series by these great words in Romans chapter 8, where in Romans chapter 8, Paul is trying to convince the Romans of the security, the certainty of salvation, if you trust in Jesus. Speaks so much of what we've been talking about in Ecclesiastes, so much of all the scriptures. Let's finish together with this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, 
who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Here's a great question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, will separate us from the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we give you grace. We give you grace in this time. That we have meaning before us in Jesus. We have meaning where it seems foolishness. Help us, Lord. Help us never forget our Saviour. We can have a drink. Help us to enjoy the blessings enjoy the good things that we've seen in Ecclesiastes drives us to, without them being our purpose in life. Help us to see them as great blessings from you and their goodness. Help us to get rid of the folly of things that are wicked that we see purpose in. Help us to rightly fear you and thank you that you have taken the judgment that is promised in the Lord Jesus. Help us to trust in you. May 2017, Lord, a year where we embrace Jesus as your people here at Trinity Grace. We ask, Lord, that you will help us to show others how desperately they need this name. In our dear Lord Jesus. going to stand